Kofler, and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks, I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this 12th episode, I talk to Emmerich Ernoux, uh, the founder and CEO of Agorapulse, one of the leading social media management platforms. As a young French lawyer, Emmerich moved to Washington DC to practice law. After he decided this was not for him, he started a French pre-Facebook social network and a B2B community software company while juggling other jobs on the side. We talk about his backstory, why he hasn't raised any VC funding, and how he built his product, brand, content, and company, all from Paris. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, Emmerich. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Hi, Sherwin. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> you are founder of uh, Agora Pulse. Um, if anyone hasn't heard of Agora Pulse yet, what, what do you guys do? Um, it, it is a software that you can use online and it basically helps you manage uh, social profiles. Uh, if you're a business or an agency managing Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever social media presence for businesses, then you know you need a tool because um, it, makes, it makes your life much easier and, and, and makes your daily task and work much faster. So it's, it's uh, making you reply to incoming comments and messages and mentions on Twitter, uh, private messages. It helps you publish on multiple social profiles on all the previously mentioned social networks. It helps you get uh, metrics and reporting on how you're doing. So it's, it's, it's a tool for social media managers. Yeah, so, but really all in one I hear. So it's like, yeah. like um, there's many of these tools that allow you to manage conversations on social media. There's yeah. tools that do the, the posting and the scheduling. There's tools that do analytics, but yours seems to do all of this in one tool. Yeah, exactly. We're not the only one. I'm not going to lie. We have competition, but uh, oh, we're... Do? Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do like uh, several. Uh, the biggest one is, is called Hootsuite. Many people mm -hmm. know Hootsuite because yeah. it's the leader on the market. Uh, but Hootsuite is a Canadian company, so North American company. Uh, the second in that market is Broad Social, which is also an American company. And, mm -hmm. and, and the third is us, and we're the only European contender. Um, at, at a reasonable price level, of course, you know, I'm not comparing ourselves with the enterprise uh, software that are costing thousands of euros every month. Our pricing starts at 49 euros. So it is affordable for any business size. And in that market range, um, you know, Hootsuite is the leader, Sprout is the second, and I, I hope we're the third. Yeah. So you're focusing on the, the smaller companies and not so much the, the big enterprises. Yeah. We're not focusing on the big enterprise. We're not, we're not focusing on the very small companies like the mom and pops companies because mm -hmm. you know, those guys, they don't have time for social media. So they obviously don't have a need for tools. Uh, we're, we're more focusing on small agencies who do that work for clients uh, mm -hmm. because they definitely need tools. And, and I'd say, you know, smallish, medium-sized companies. Um, it's not necessarily a matter of the size of the company. It's more a matter of their level of maturity on social media and the level mm -hmm. of activity they have on social media. You, you can be a, a, a pretty large company and, and have a very poor presence in social media. Then the tool is not really what you need the most. Uh, so that's, that's how we define our, our clients. It's based on how mature and how active they are on social media. 
Yeah. So if you really want to become professional about social media, then you get your tool. Oh yeah. You, you have to, it's, you, you can't without a tool. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah it's, it's all a, a big mess with all the different social <laughs> media where you need to log in and find the analytics and then try to make sense of it. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's a huge mess. If you have more than uh, let's say four or five different social profiles on different social networks, you just, it's, it's too much of a waste of time. Does it also like manage, um, more for our related things because for instance with salesflare if we if we publish things on social media it's not just on the on the normal ones like linkedin facebook twitter and etc uh there's also things like uh, reddit and growthhackers.com etc is this something that is also in there or is that no no it's no. not in there and that's what yeah, it's out of scope, I think. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because we never, ever had a request for that kind of feature. So I don't think there's a need for a market. Yeah, okay. Now, if, if we would become a customer, I would, I would request it. So that would be the first request, I guess. You would, you would go into a receptive request <laughs> and we will evaluate based on the number of requests and the amount of money you're paying us every month. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I see. Okay, I will. I will certainly have a look at your trial, and then uh, we'll see how this uh, how did this actually start for you. Like, like, were you a social media manager before, or it's a long story? So you you, you want to go back to the early days of you know what I yeah. what I what I saw. I I um at the age of uh, eighteen. I was finishing high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And funny enough, I have a 17 year old now who is finishing high school and is in the same spot. It doesn't know what he wants to do. So mm -hmm. I guess it's a normal thing for many people not to have a passion they've been following since they were five or six and knowing exactly what they wanted to. And um, long story short, I ended up in law school because um, I was told that, you know, I should go to university to prepare for big um renowned school in france called sciences po and yeah. and and in order to get to sciences po it's either a prep class or a university and they said i said okay what university they say history or law i said okay no no way i'm going to be a history teacher yeah. uh, if i can't get to that high to that uh, uh renowned school so i went for law my grandfather was a lawyer my great-grandfather was a lawyer i said that yeah, sounds like a job i interesting job. So mm -hmm. studied law for seven years, uh, eventually never tried to apply to that school because law school went very well for me and uh, got my bar exam, moved to the US, started to work at the French embassy as a lawyer, then started to work as a lawyer in, in a US law firm in Washington, DC, and went back to their Paris office and worked there. So I, I, I probably was a lawyer for four years. Um, and Funny enough, I was very successful. Uh, I brought my first million euro client at the age of 27 to the law firm. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of had that stupid idea about myself that I, I was there already. You know, I was, I was done. I, I, I proved my value and there was no more challenge for me. And so I started thinking that what do I want to do in my life? Uh, I want to own my, I, have, I want to be my own boss. I want to own my own thing. And I want to lead my own way and um, working for a big law firm will not make me happy in the long run because I'll be a number in a big, big organization. So I want to start You could my be a partner, thing. no? Yeah, you could be a partner. But trust me, uh, my best friend at that law firm was a partner. He was mm -hmm. 57 and I, I, I could see the struggles he had, like, you know, not being heard. Uh, not feeling um, that he had an impact, you know, having to deal with this big political stuff like 
You know, it's a big organization. There's politics all over the place. And I knew I didn't want politics. I didn't want, I I wanted to build stuff and do stuff and, and, and create stuff and, and not deal with other people trying to work on me and, 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 and get away with it. And, and, you know, like take advantage of me and, and have having to do the same kind of ugly politics game to to stay ahead of the curve so i said i that's not what i want and then i looked at my options i said i either create my own law firm or i quit the legal profession and i i started a company with a product and mm-hmm. i was totally i was totally naive about what it takes to start your own company and a product and but i thought well if i create my own law firm i'll have all the pain of being an entrepreneur you know hiring the best people managing them so a lot of hr paying them at the end of the month, finding clients, getting the money in, being stressed about the financial situation. Am I going to be able to pay the rent and the salaries at the end of the month? Growing that. And, and so it's the same problems as any entrepreneur would have when you, own, you have your own service company, lawyer or accountant or anything else. Um, and you're limited. You're limited by the number of hours you can build. So it doesn't scale. You can't, you know, you can't basically scale something big in the service business. Um, I mean, big, big. And that's number one. And number two, um, you're not building any assets. You know, you cannot sell your clientele. You cannot go on vacation for six months and take some time off, off the grid and, you know, you're not free. Basically, your job is a prison. You cannot stop working. And that I witnessed firsthand with my friends who were a partner at that law firm. I saw them working their butt off all the time, going on vacation where their their phone on their ear all day long, you know, answering clients while they were skiing. <laughs> it was horrible. I witnessed that. I said, I don't want that. At 55, like the age of my friend, I want to be free to do what I want. I don't I don't want to be bugged by by business and, and clients and projects when I'm off, when I'm on weekend, when it's night. And, and, you know, those guys used to work all night, all nighters and all weekends to get the, the, the deal closed and all that stuff. I said, this is not the, the life I want when I get older. Mm-hmm. So I switched and I made the decision to quit and start my first company in 2000 with my partner, Benoit, who is still my partner as of today, 18 years later. Um, and uh, the company failed. I went back to the law firm. They took me back. I worked there for two years. And then I quit again. And still with Benoit, we tried to relaunch the, co- the company that was still there, dormant, but working. It was, a, it was a software. It was already a software. And it was already social media. But it was a software helping people to create their own communities, their own private uh-huh. space where they could share stuff, photos and messages and videos with their friends. It was basically Facebook before Facebook, but, you know, timing is everything. And -hmm. trying to build Facebook in France in 2000, 2001 was not a good idea. That I learned the hard way. And uh, so we pivoted that to a B2B play where we would sell to brands and businesses that that piece of software, white labels, so they can build their own community space and, you know, collaborate as teams and stuff like that. That was also pretty hard to sell in 2004, five, six. And then, you know, so we kept in there. I, I took side jobs between 2005 and 2008 just to make money because the, the internet business was not making any money. Well, it was making very little money and just enough to pay Benoit and to pay you know, servers and the, the basic costs. Mm-hmm. And it, in 2008, I went back 
full time with Benoit because Facebook was becoming big. They just they just launched the the, the, the fan pages. There was the, the whole rage about it at the time, and Twitter was becoming. And so, like I, I was thinking, okay, now businesses are gonna get social media. They're gonna get the community thing, and they're be they're they're gonna be willing to build, you know, to invest money, time, and energy in building their communities. So we tried to push, push, push for that B2B build your own community uh, piece of software. The name was Affinities, by the way. And, um, and it grew like painfully slowly. It was horrible. And uh, after two years, 2010, I, we sat with Benoit and I told him, you know, if we, if we keep trying to sell that build your own community thing while the market keeps telling us, oh, we don't want to build our own community. We just want to go on the existing ones, Facebook. That was Facebook at the time, mostly for French. And um, if, we don't, if we don't accompany that movement, uh, helping people seize the opportunities on the existing social networks, then we're going to be crushed by them. So we pivoted again uh, for the for third time. And we started building uh, contests and promotions on Facebook that was the only thing brands and businesses wanted in 2010 and 11. And that's how we got started by building the spoke contest and promotions on Facebook. And very quickly we realized that, Oh my God, I left the law firm not to be in a service business uh, because of all the problems associated to it and all the pain associated to that. And now I'm, I'm back in the service business selling bespoke apps for businesses that we sell, I don't know, 15,000 euros and make, 3,000 euros of profit margin on it, it's, it's not sustainable and it's a pain and I don't want to do that. So we industrialize all these apps into a platform so people can basically pay 49 a month and get their own contest started. They build themselves. And that was 2000, end of 2011. That was the first version of Agora Pulse that we launched in, in, in November of 2011. And, you know, we iterated from that because contests and promotions were a bad business model. There was no stickiness. The churn was very high. So we started to add statistics and, and comment management just on Facebook. And then we realized Facebook was not enough. So we added Twitter. And then a year later, we added Instagram and then LinkedIn and YouTube and everything else. So from 2011 to today, it was a small improvement, you know, small steps by steps and, and small improvements by small improvements, taking us from a business model that was there making money, but not a good business model and, and, and basically transforming it to something that's, that people need to use every day and that has retention and engagement and a, a, a much better business model, which is what we have today. Wow. Yeah, that is a huge story to come where you're now on. But it's, it's always been in social media. Is there a reason for that? Not, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you just liked it. Yeah, I, you know, to be honest with you, I, while I was having side jobs between 2005 and 2008, I've managed a company that invented a system to empty um, uh, oil tankers when they sink to avoid yeah. spillage. Um, it's nothing to see with anything, um, computers or, or code or web. And the second company I managed for two years was selling, uh, hip, uh, replacement devices. Yeah. Uh, hip replacement devices have nothing to do with the web or anything else. So it, it, I, I probably could have run 
any kind of business. Um, I, I'm, I love the web because it's dynamic, uh, it's innovative, um, it's young, it's energetic. So that's what I love about this industry. I didn't like the medical industry, for example, the, the medical device industry that's had a, a lot of issues and problems with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I like. But the exact product and the exact thing is not what drives me. What drives me is building something, whatever yeah. it, building something useful that people enjoy using, that solves problems for them, and that makes them do their job, you know, with more fun or efficiency or whatever, like bringing something positive and useful to the market and feeling that energy. That's what drives me. And the, the, the kind of product matters less than that um, impression that I'm having an impact on, on people's lives. So, you know, it's a, it's a big word, but it's people's professional lives, saving them time and, and pain. But for me, that's, that's what drives me. Yeah, totally got it. I totally feel the same about it. Actually, I was also in uh, the medical field for, for a while. Uh, had the same feelings about it. It's very slow and conservative and everything. And uh, being in the software as a service business is just so exciting because there's so many possibilities. There's so much moving. Uh, customers are much more open for new things. Like if you're selling to doctors, they see your new thing and they're like, oh, it looks new, but is it better? Is it like really much better? And they just, uh, you know, yeah. they're very conservative about things. So. Yeah, and at the time I was not selling to doctors. I was I was selling to surgeons, mm-hmm. and these Those people, are doctors. these people are very <laughs> they're very special. They yeah. they they think very highly of themselves, oh, yeah. and much more than much more than the regular doctor. And they're they're pretty hard to deal with, to be honest with you. And um, and it's also an industry that I think it's getting a lot better now, but it was not very clean uh financially mm-hmm. speaking there has been a lot of scandals of surgeons asking for bribes and kickbacks on and i know the whole industry has been cleaned a lot because you know the governments have gone against those those practices but there was still that kind of you know atmosphere that you know those people were expecting things like you know send me to the mauritius island and maybe i'll buy you <laughs> stuff and you're like what <laughs> that I didn't enjoy at all. Uh, What year was that? It was 2005, 6, 7. Yeah, Yeah, because when I joined uh, the medical industry, which was in 2010, then everything was buckled down already. Uh, One of the first things I had to do... When I was uh, a lawyer... Yeah? Yeah, when I was a lawyer, we had a client in the medical device and the medical device industry was the worst and there were scandals all over the place. And that was 1998, 1999. So it took time to clean up. I hope it's clean now because it was really disgusting. But um, yeah, so I didn't like that. That that industry for for that reason was was not fun uh, to be in. The web is much better. It's all about value. They get value, you get money. They get value, you don't get money. That's simple. I like this, those kind of simple things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally agree. It's it's much more. Uh, uh, yeah, in 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 the medical in the medical uh, sector, you have all these different players, and they all have an effect somewhere, and it's super complicated. Well. Well, in, 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 in web, you can, you can have indeed value. Someone takes it, pays it, and done. 
Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. There are complexities too, but they're, they're normal Obviously. complexities. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about complexities, uh, you guys are in the VC funded track, I think. We are not. You are uh, not. Oh, I mis yeah. mis misread. We, Is that a conscious we, choice? Or? We, no, it was not in the early days because it was super tough to not have any money in the bank. Uh, we, got, mm -hmm. we, we raised some money from Business Centrals that were old friends of mine. Uh, we raised 300,000 euros mm -hmm. uh, in, in 2009. 2009. Uh, unfortunately, more than half of that money was, was spent on Affinities, the old business that we eventually killed because it was not working. Mm -hmm. And you know, probably only 100K would, was used to bootstrap the, um, the Agorapulse uh, project. And we raised another very small seed round in 2012 of 250,000. So that's when you say, are you VC funded? No, like, you know, 300K of business essentials and 250K of of seed round does not qualify as VC funding. No. Yeah. When you, you know, our competitor, our two main competitors, um, the one I mentioned earlier, raised mm -hmm. respectively 165 million and 60 <laughs> and 60 million. So, when I look at what we've raised, it's basically pocket money. So it's not it's not VC funded. Yeah, is that because VCs were like, it's uh, oh, yet another social media management tool, oh, or is it oh, because? Oh yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, yeah, <laughs> of course. Like raising VC money is super duper hard. People always get confused about the fact that it may be easy, and if you have a good idea, you'll get money. No, you you're not going to get money if you have a good idea. They actually invest in one um, company out of hundreds they receive pitch for. Like it's it's very hard to to raise money. And that's, that's also a reason why I always advise founders to try to build something that does not require raising money. Because then if, mm -hmm. if you do require, uh, require raising money, your chances to get there are diminished to like tiny. You're like, it's, there's nothing less. You have one chance out of a hundred to get your business off the ground if you need uh, a million dollars to get started, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, we tried in the early days to go beyond that very little seed funding because you know, it was hard. It was I didn't pay myself for a year and a half, and wow. then and then you know Ben and I paid ourselves like minimum wage, French minimum wage, which is fourteen hundred euros or something a month for probably mm -hmm. around a year and a half or two years, and then and then we increased ourselves like two thousand a month, twenty five hundred, which. Just to give you a comparison point, at 27, when I was a lawyer, I was making 15,000 a month. So <laughs> 10 years later, almost, or eight years later, making minimum wage was a sacrifice, like a big one. And yeah. um, uh, I would have loved to have some VC money at the bank to alleviate that, that, that suffering, but we did not. And, and the, thing, the funny thing is, when we got to 100,000 uh, euro monthly recurring revenue, in 2016, mm -hmm. we said, okay, now they don't believe in us. They don't believe in the market. They don't, but they have to believe in the numbers and our numbers are good. Let's go try to raise money. And we went on the third roadshow we've, we've done to raise money. And we eventually got a letter of intent from a VC in Paris. And almost at the end of the process, we had been audited by the lawyers and, and the accountants and you know, all, everything was almost finished. And at the last, at the finish line, we basically declined the author. And we said, oh, you know what? We thought about it. We're not going to raise the money. Yeah. So, is, that a, 
a short-term decision or a long-term one? Like, like, is this just turning down this one offer or you're gonna, you're gonna keep doing this? Everything is a short-term decision. Let's face it. You know, let's not try to say that I have certainties for the rest of my life. I will never Mm -hmm. do A or B. It was definitely a decision for now. And it's still the decision for today, uh, like almost a year and a half later. But, you know, who knows? Maybe in a year or two years, it will make sense for us. Uh, But the decision we made was was not a decision of principle. It was a decision based on a lot of thought we gave into it. Mm -hmm. And and the main, that's a piece of advice for people who are wondering if they want to raise money. And I wrote a whole Medium post about that, by the way, if you want to know everything I I think about, um, all the advice I have for people trying to raise money and decide whether or not they should do it. Mm -hmm. You can can search on Medium for uh, nine compelling reasons reasons not to raise VC money or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think Com- I read not, that. Accompanying yeah. reasons not to raise VC money, you'll, you'll find yeah. my post. Yeah. So all my thoughts are, are summarized there. That's the result of years and years and years of trying to raise money and finally saying no. Um, so go read that. Uh, but basically, the long story short is I called 15 CEOs who had raised money in the past. And I asked them this simple question, two simple questions. Number one, would you do it again? comparing benefit versus costs of having an investor on the board on board. Mm-hmm. Number two, as a percentage of the money you raised, how much was used efficiently and how much was wasted. Mm-hmm. And on the, would you do it again? I think I got mixed responses because, you know, most people said yes, because they actually couldn't say no for some reason. (laughs) Uh, But on the amount of money that was wasted, the minimum amount of wasted money was 50%, five zero. And the maximum amount was like 75 or 80%. So what I learned is that most people raise money without a very clear picture or of how they're going to be able to leverage that money to the best of their abilities and to the best of the company. Of the company. Mm-hmm. They raise money because it's good to raise money. It's good to have money in the bank. With more money, we're going to do more stuff. They tell themselves the story of that more stuff they're going to be able to do, but they don't even know if it's going to work. They have no mm-hmm. certainty. They have not tested it. They have not gone you know, the extra mile to make sure that it was good use of the money. And when they get the money, they start spending left and right. And And as we do make a lot of mistakes, as we all do, but now their mistakes have more zeros to them because they have more money. So they make more expensive mistakes. And actually not having a lot of money is, is, is actually a blessing in many instances because you make cheaper mistakes. You, you, you're going to make mistakes, whatever you do. You know, it's, it's the rule, mm-hmm. number one, base rule. So if you don't have a lot of money, you're going to test small. You're going to try small. And you're not going to do, okay, let's spend 50000 a month on AdWords. You're going to say, okay, let's put 2000 a month on AdWords and try to figure this out. It's just you know, try to see if it work, can work for us or not. That's, that's the kind of stuff we do all the time. And you know, just to give you a hint, AdWords doesn't work for us at all. It's, it's a mess. Yeah. And, and um, um, I'm, actually, I'm actually happy and thankful that we didn't have a huge chunk of money because I know for a fact that I, I would have wasted most of it. And the last thing is one of the motivation for us after seven years in the business to raise money was to be kind of member of the club of the VC funded company. That was totally an ego thing, completely stupid. I, I totally give up on that and I'm happy I, I grew up 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and the second and the second one is because we wanted advice guidance basically beyond the money we wanted to have help you know it's it's hard to be alone trying to grow something it's difficult and when you're on your own and you have to make a dozen decisions every day, you feel like, okay, I know I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. If someone could step in and help me make less mistakes and more good decisions, that would be great. But it's actually a mirage because all the CEOs I talked to told me one thing and that one thing I heard from each and every one of them. Oh, if you take a VC, do it for the money because that's all you're going to get. And if you get something else, well, good for you. But that's cherry on top and don't expect it because chances are that you're not going to get it. So I thought, oh my God, I'm doing this for the wrong reasons because mm-hmm. I, we actually didn't need the money. We were profitable at the time at 140K a month. And, and we, we were not sure what to do with the money, sure fire, like not to make sure we would not waste it. And we were looking for those VCs to help us, which is not something they would eventually do. So it was all the wrong reasons. That's why we said no. Yeah. Cool. Is it something you do more often, like uh, this kind of service with with other founders around topics, or or is it just specifically for this that you did a a big research because it was a huge decision for you? I I do speak to other CEOs and founders from time to time, uh, but I don't do that level of interviewing them because it was super time consuming. It probably took yeah. me an entire week to get that done and nobody has the time for that. Mm-hmm. But I do have a couple of CEO friends and we 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 try to update each other from time to time and we every time learn a shitload of stuff from the other person's experience. Uh, but it's, I don't have a system for this. I do that. Hey, hey, Alex, what are you doing? We should talk. And then we get on Skype and we talk for 45 minutes and we do that twice a year or once a year. And it's, um, yeah. And I try to be members of clubs or, or networks. We have other entrepreneurs. I'm a member of a, of a club that's a kite surf club. Cause I'm, I love kite surfing. That's mm-hmm. my thing. It's my hobby. So it's a kite surf club for entrepreneurs and they organize kite camp five times a year. So I go to one or two of them and I, then I network with other entrepreneurs. So I, I try to do that kind of stuff because you, you learn a lot from other people. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. No, it's always really great if you can connect with other founders and learn from them because if you're just there alone, it's uh, sometimes the questions are a bit hard to, to solve on your own and others have already gone through it. So. Yeah. Uh, in terms of in terms of ambitions, where do you see Agora Pulse go? Um, that's a funny question, um, and that's pro- that's also probably why I didn't I didn't want no, no not funny in a, in in a way that uh, it's not a good question, but it's 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 interesting because you get challenged on your ambitions all the time. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to DHH, one of the two co-founders of um, uh, Basecamp who said that it was challenged not to be ambitious enough with Basecamp um, many times. And, he, you know, he said, you know, Basecamp is making dozens of millions of AR every year. And I think I'm, I've been ambitious enough. I don't need to get lessons on ambition. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how ambitions has, has plays a role there. And especially, especially for VCs, if you want to raise VC money, you'd better sound ambitious as hell. You know, you'd better sound like I'm going to conquer the world and be the best and be the first and be the biggest and, and dominate and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, <laughs> act, it's actually pretty rare 
that you want that and you get it. It's it's very 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 difficult to to you know get to the 100 million euro a year mark. It's hard as mm-hmm. as hell. Um, my ambition is not so so an ambition of money and size and big. My ambition is to do the best I can, use the best of my abilities to take this venture, this adventure, as far as possible, as big as possible, as, as you know, useful for the market and our clients as possible. And it, is it 10 million a year? Okay, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll probably be, be in the 0.001% of the richest people on earth by the time it happens. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be 20 million a year? Cool. Is it going to be 50 million a year? Fine with me. Is it going to be 100 million? I, I don't care. What I care about is I put the best of me in that venture. I, 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 I you know, I, I go as far as I can. Uh, I take it as far as it can be taken, but I don't have any numbers. I don't have any precise goal. My goal is to do the best, make my team do its best, um, and do that in, a, in an atmosphere, in, in an environment where people are happy to do what they're doing. Pe- you know, people inside our team members and people outside our clients and partners, they are happy to work with us. They are happy to use our product. They are happy to be in business with us. Our employees and team members are happy to work for this company, for me, for the other managers in the company. Everybody is seeing meaning and purpose in what they do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we have a comfortable life. You know, we have a car, we have a house, we pay the rent, we have some good food, we take some time off, we go on vacation, we enjoy life. Nothing else matters. Yep. I mean, everything else is ego and, and, and you know, <laughs> your problem with your childhood that you have things to prove and like you should go to see a shrimp. <laughs> Uh, the shrink, I, yeah. the shrink, your shrink. You're right. Sorry, <laughs> a, sh- a shrink is well. not going to help you. <laughs> You'll have a good a good meal, but they're not going to help. Uh, yeah. So my my relationship with ambition, I I could build a one million euro a year business. I, it, it's possible. You know, maybe in 10, 15 years, it's it's very possible. We're at five right now, mm-hmm. um, and it it took us, you know four years to get from zero to one and it took us two years to get from one to five. So, you know, things are definitely accelerating and getting faster. So that business could be big. But the one thing I learned is don't be motivated by the end goal and don't put an end goal as the one thing you need to achieve. Mm -hmm. Be motivated by the journey. Be motivated by the path by what you're doing on a daily basis, because that's what's going to make you happy. Yeah. Because if happiness is conditioned upon making 10 million a year or 20 or 50 or 100, I guarantee you depression and mm-hmm. I guarantee you unhappiness in the end. So my ambition is to be happy. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Otherwise, you're never going to, well, like you said, you're never going to make it anyway. Oh, you, if you don't you, enjoy the journey, then you yeah. have reasons to be unhappy about where you are every single day. If you look at it this way, <laughs> every single day. And so I sure. could be 
running a business that makes 5 million uh, revenue, annual revenue, that makes 100,000 euro profit every month, gives me a good salary and an interesting life. And I could be depressed because it's only that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I have friends who are CEOs of SaaS companies that make the same money, the same amount of money we make, but they're losing money because they were VC funded and they have a, too big of a team and everything is too expensive and they make... Um, a lot of mistakes with a lot more zeros than we did and so on and so forth. But, but when you look at their business, it could be the same as ours, profitable, fun, and they are depressed because their dream was so much bigger and they can feel that they're not getting there and they are mm -hmm. depressed. And when I talk to them, I'm like, it's, it's all about the perspective you have on everything because I have the same thing you have and I'm happy and you have the same thing I have and you're very unhappy. So you either change your perspective or you sell the business or you get rid of it because you cannot stay unhappy like this. It's, it's, it's not sane. Yeah, yeah but they also held, they're also held responsible for the, the results they're not making. So it's not like they can make a yeah. conscious decision. Yeah, they're, just they're, be happy they're holding themselves. Yeah, but they're holding themselves. Yeah. It's, you know, being held responsible, letting other people holding you responsible for not achieving a result is also your responsibility. You, of not, course it is. But it's yeah, not like they can just easily exit it now. Uh, hmm. they, they took the funding and they're held responsible now. And it's not something you just uh, escape like that. No, for sure. That's why I'm happy we didn't take too much funding. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the things actually that you're doing right now to, uh, to improve Agora Pulse, like these daily things you're enjoying right now? You know, it's all, it's the addition of hundreds of small things. I, I, I keep being asked, you know, what is the one thing that made you successful? What, what is the one thing? No, no, what are you doing and, right now? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. But what, what we're doing right now is always based on the same core principle, first principles, if you want, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's working on the product, on every little detail of the product to improve every little thing that is causing frustration, is not efficient enough, is not fast enough. So that is focus number one. You know, focus mm -hmm. number one is the solution you're bringing to the market. You have to constantly improve it because it's never perfect. And you have to constantly talk to your customers, listen to the customers and have as many processes and, and, and um, uh, channels to be able to, to hear about them and, and to have that feedback from the bottom go go up and be heard mm -hmm. by your team and by you as the founder it's it's key i see too many founders that lose that connection with the with their users that's really 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 key number one number two is you you have to constantly let the world know that you are offering this great service and that's your second challenge and what mm -hmm. you do to create awareness about your your product you can do two things. You can do short-term things and you can do long-term things. We've mm -hmm. always mostly done long-term things. And the reason behind that is because short-term things are very hard to, to succeed at, like AdWords, Facebook ads. Um, you know, everything you do that's bringing short-term traffic is, and short-term awareness is very hard to do. And it, it vanishes pretty quickly. Once you've stopped investing in them, then nothing comes out of them anymore. And I always wanted to invest in things that were compounding over time. And that was, that would not die the day you stop doing them. Now, let's say you do a blog and you write one blog post every day for two years, you're going to create traffic and 
and, and SEO visibility and, and credibility and blah, blah, blah. When you stop blogging the next month, you're still going to get the same traffic. You're still going to get the same visibility and awareness and same the, the next month and the fall and the next and the next and the next. Maybe after six or eight months, the things will start decreasing, but you've created, you've created something that compounds over time that doesn't stop once you stop investing in it. And that's the kind of stuff we've always invested in the most. So content as being a big one where mm-hmm. we've also invested a lot in, in our ambassador program, which is basically gathering uh, influencers in social media who are using our product and showing using our product and, and ready being be ready to spread the word about it. So we work a lot with them and we try to build up that ambassador mm-hmm. uh, group to get more and more referrals from, from influential uh, people. And, um, um, and everything that's about the brand. I, I, I know it sounds a bit uh, vague. You know, what does that mean to build a brand? But we want to build a brand that people like and want to be in business with. And that goes with very little things. Every little detail in the business is always thought through as, is it going to make us look as a nice brand you want to do business with? Or is it going to make us not look as a, as, as a good brand? And if it's, mm-hmm. if it's not helping our brand, we don't do it. If it's helping our brand, we do it. And, and I think branding is probably the most important things in a noisy market, in a, in a oh, busy man. market. And we're almost all in busy and noisy markets in 2018. So building a brand is what's going to save you or, or kill you if you don't. Yeah. So product, brand, content, and company. Yeah. Yeah, we launched a second blog uh, last September that's all about uh, testing assumptions on social media. So we spend a, sh- a ton of time running oh. tests, learning about the test, gathering the data, mm-hmm. writing about the test. We created a podcast about the, the, the test we run. It's a huge investment. It's probably 10,000 euro a month investment. So it's a lot of money to invest in just a blog and a podcast. I say just because it's not, it's definitely not going to generate immediate direct uh, free trials and, 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 and subscriptions to a SaaS business. But in the long run, it's helping the market. It's unique. It's making people falling in love with the process or testing process, the results we got because nobody else goes that deep and far in testing stuff on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff I like to do because in the long run, it, it takes you above the noise. You know, you're, you're above the, the, the nitty gritty of what everybody else is doing. You're doing something different. That's bringing something, you know, a new, diff, new type of value and in a different in a different format and i think that's the kind of thing uh when we have the means and the time uh we have to invest on and and other little things is like you know for example how you treat uh, refund to customers like that's a branding thing so a customer comes to you and say i'm not happy with your product give me my money back most SaaS companies are going to say, oh, look at our terms of service. You know, we can't give you your money back. Article number 4.7, you know, once it's paid, it's paid. And I've had that mm-hmm. experience several times with SaaS product. I even have an experience with Kissmetrics when I cancel my plan on Kissmetrics. We've been with them for four years. And I cancel my plan a week before the expiration. Say, hey, sorry, guys, we moved to our own data warehouse and we've outgrown Kissmetrics. And and they got back to me and said, oh, Article 5.6 of our terms of service, you have to give us 30-day notice. And I, 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 w- I was thinking, 
fuck guys. I mean, we've been with you for four years. We've been a good client. We've just outgrown you, outgrown you moving to a more robust solution. It's not, it's not you, it's us, right? So, and we've been with you for four years, paying you 600 a month for four years. Why do you want to, why are you trying to, to take an, an additional 600 for the last year? I'm going to take 600 more for, this is branding. Because now their brand is tarnished in my head. And see, I just told you that story and listeners are going to listen to that and mm-hmm. think, oh, Kismetric sucks. And, th- and this is hurting your brand in the long run. So think about how your brand is perceived by people who are in touch with it and what, 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 how your decision on anything in the business is going to impact that perception. Yeah. As you're... Uh, um into social media analytics and into branding. Is there any way you measure branding um, in an analytical way? Well, the only way I found is to measure the number of times we're we're being mentioned as a brand on the web. So it's very uh, imperfect, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a starting point. You know, if, if you're being... If you're being mentioned 40 times a month and you work and work and work a lot on on having more and more people being aware of what you do and who you are, and you move to being mentioned 50 times a month and 60 times a month, then at least you can measure some kind of progress. But you will never be able to measure the perception of your brand. That that is something you can't measure and and still is utterly important. Yeah. Unless with uh like like the big brands do with uh, a big brand recognition survey or something, but yeah, but it's something flawed. we cannot. Yeah, it's really flawed. It's it's something that has to come from the top, the founders mm-hmm. or the CEO, and it, 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 it's it's it has to be ingrained in the company culture. You know, this is how we treat our customers. This yeah. is how we treat our partners, and this is what's right and not right. And you have to go very far into making everybody believe and adhere to the fact that the customer is to be treated. As, as, as even better than I would treat my own family. Like, you know, if you go that far, then the company culture, become, it becomes clear to everybody, even from the outside, that this company cares about me. And once yeah. you've been able to do that, then you won. Cool. You, you just talked about um, how in the long run, you see results of uh, content. Uh, you've, been, you've been at content for a while. For those just starting off, what, how does that work and what are you seeing? Uh, for those just starting off, um, what you have to do is you have to really focus on identifying the one thing you could be creating content for that's going to be duper useful, super useful for your target audience and try to think of your target audience as a subset of your ideal target audience. Like try to go as niche and and small as possible don't try to appeal to like if you were in social media do not try to appeal to every social media managers it's gone it's too late mm-hmm. uh, that space is already too crowded but maybe you can focus on agency managing social media because there's there's not a ton of content for for agency uh, people managing social media maybe you can target on a specific vertical or maybe you can target on a specific country, like for example, in France or in Belgium, where you leave. I don't feel there is a lot of influential content about social media in French, uh, and that's high quality. I, 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 you know, I, I don't know a lot of them, and I think there's room there uh, if you mm-hmm. want to be. So, be being being small, either by localization or industry vertical or type of job, 
is probably the starting point. And then try to, you know, look on the market. What, do you, what, what can you find on Google when you search for those keywords you'd like to, to get people to come to you? Mm-hmm. And, and, and try to narrow down the target markets that way. And then once you've done that, spend a lot of time talking to them and trying to understand what would they like to learn? What, what are they wondering? What they don't know and they need to know. Go on forums, Facebook groups, and try to have a sense of what are these questions that remains unanswered and a lot of people have and I could help answer. And even if it takes me a long time to research and write, it is worth it because that is answering the question. That's a burning question for them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to do with our social media lab, where we do a lot of tests. We go and try to understand, okay, what, what questions do social media managers have that's very hard to prove or disprove? It would take a week of work, but that we're ready to invest to give them the answer. Yeah. And how do, how do, how do you then get people to this, these articles? Is this mostly search traffic or is it people recommending it? Or yeah, it- it's, it's, it's a combination of both. Uh, you have to promote to to the right channels. Um, you know, you have to make sure that there will be enough search traffic because it's always a big driver in the long mm-hmm. run. And once, and, and you know, if you identify those questions in forums or Facebook groups, you just have to go there and say, Hey, you know, Quora, you know, that kind of, that kind of channel, just, mm-hmm. just go there and say, Hey, we, we wrote a, we spent a week testing this and we wrote a blog post about the result. Maybe it's interesting. And then, Yep. Little by little, stone by stone, you know, you're going to build a wall and, and it's, it's mm-hmm. eventually going to, going to build an audience. It takes time. The other thing I've noticed is people love to read stories. And if you, could, if you can write something about your story and how you did something and how you failed at something and how you succeeded at something and that mm-hmm. appeals to your audience, it's usually a good starting point because people don't like, like advice per se, but they'd like to hear about this is how I did it and this is why it worked for me and this is why it didn't work for me. And that, that's, what, yeah. that's what you can learn from it. Because it's much more tangible and concrete. Yeah, and you can relate to that. It, it's yeah. someone else's story. It's not a, it's not a big artificial piece of advice that's not grounded into real life experience. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a few times already that you're based in Paris. How is that? Uh, is it a good place to have your startup? Um, you know what? The, the good place to have a startup is the place you are currently living in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in 2018, there's no reason to move to, to get us to start a company. Uh, there's no reason to go to the US. There's no reason to go to San Francisco, there's no reason to go to Berlin or London or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is so much, so many roadblocks in, in, the, in the mind of someone thinking of starting a company. There's so many fear, there's so many things I may not know, I may not succeed at, it's so stressful, quitting my job. If you have to add the need to move to a different country or, or city, no, nobody's yeah. going to create a company. So like remove that blocker. It does not, it does not exist. Yeah. And you can always start your company in Paris and feel like Paris is not the, the right place for you and move to the US or move to London or move to someplace else. Personally, because we're, we're not targeting the enterprise, I don't need to have a sales team on the ground going to see the clients and we can mm-hmm. sell our product to clients all across the globe. Being in Paris and having... We have team members in the US, we have team members in Ireland, in Slovakia, in Mexico, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Malaysia. So with remote work, you can have team members all over the world and provide customer support 24-7 while mm-hmm. having your 
your headquarters still in Paris or Berlin or wherever you want. So I don't, I don't think it matters. Yeah. Are all these team members across the globe in customer service and sales or also other? They're, they're mostly customer facing and customer facing means they, they may do support, they may do customer success or they may do sales. Yeah. You mentioned customer support and customer success. Is that different at the Goropulse? Well, it used to be different, but I think that was a mistake. Uh, so mm. what we've decided to do now is we have one person who is responsible for the customer success framework. So she's basically in charge of putting together the processes, the, the, the assets, um, the content, the videos, the automated sequences within our, our CRM, uh, which, which we use Intercom for that. Mm-hmm. So she be, she's thinking and engineering and building the customer success framework. And remember, we're self-service affordable tool, so we cannot be too hands-on with everybody because they're not giving us enough money to have an account manager or, or one person who's taking care of them. So we we try we have to scale everything. So mm-hmm. she's she's building that framework of customer success, you know, to identify when, when people need help the most, uh, doing webinars so new customers can attend the webinars and learn tips and hacks to use our product yeah. and get more value out of it. So she's building that framework. But she's alone. There, she does not um, uh, customer success team, and that's what we used to have. And I think I think that was a mistake because we had a mm-hmm. customer support team and a customer success team. There were two silos, and I think it's not right. So what we're doing now is we're training our customer support people to level level up and be able to identify what should be a customer success situation when they have discussions with with, with our customers and try to play the customer success role with them. So move away from the support role, which is, oh, I have a problem, here's a solution. Mm-hmm. Move away from that you know, very reactive kind of role. Uh, that's mostly what customer support is supposed to do. And try to be more proactive. Oh, I have a question. Um, oh, I, I think the answer is that. But I'm also noticing that you're not using this feature of the product. Would you like to get on a webinar to learn how to use it? You know, mm-hmm. move from the reactive support type of um, work to, I, to be able to identify you know, pieces of information on how they use the product or what they're telling you in their message to try to become more proactive about how you could help them. Even if they didn't express it, how you could help them go a step above you know, beyond what they're expressing and maybe learn something about the product that can be helpful for, for them, but they, that they did not directly ask. Yeah. So that was what we're trying to do. And, and basically we're trying also to do that with sales as well, you know, trying, trying to help and train our customer facing support team to be able to identify sales opportunities that are, that is coming to them and, and, you know, do the first step of qualifying them or giving them, giving them sales information they need. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that in a sales service company like ours, your customer facing thing should be, uh, should have a broader set of skills than just doing support, but they should also be able to do a little bit of sales, a little bit of mm-hmm. customer success with the help of someone who is fully in charge of the sales framework or this, the customer success framework who can help them grow in that role. Yeah. So they do part of the sales and if at some point it needs to go a bit further, like demos and all kinds of discussions and it goes to, to a salesperson. Yeah. 
Cool. Wrapping up, um, what's the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? <laughs> That's a great question. I love it. I love books. I read a lot of books. Um, the latest two books I've read, and I do recommend every entrepreneur to read, especially if you have a team. The first one is called Extreme Ownership uh, by Joko Willink. Joko Willink used to be a Navy SEAL. Um, um, he was, he was uh, an officer in the Navy SEALs and he, he, he was highly highly ranked officer, still on the ground, you know, fighting the insurgent mm-hmm. and stuff. But And he, he, he went back to the U.S. to basically build the training, uh, the whole training system for Navy SEALs. And that book is about all he's learned, being a soldier, a special force soldier, all he's learned, what he's learned on the ground, that applies to businesses. And it's, it's absolutely an amazing book. And if you go in, on YouTube and search for Joko Willink, mm-hmm. you'll see the guy. The guy is, is, is amazing. He's, he's breathtaking. He's, he's, he's a special person. There's no doubt. So that's a great book. And basically, Extreme Ownership is about not putting the fault on other people when things go sour, but always have extreme ownership of everything and, and look at you and what you could have done and what you messed up and what mistakes you've made when something didn't work in your company. And I think for managers and people running companies, it's a super important thing to know and understand. So it's a book mm-hmm. to read. And the second book is called Radical Candor. And it's a book that was written by um, a woman who used to be manager at Google. She used to work for Sheryl Sandberg at Google and she created the AdSense team. And then she worked at Apple and she created the management university at Apple. And then she advised a lot of CEOs in Silicon Valley, including Twitter CEO. And it's about, basically it's about what it takes to be a manager. And you you know, funny enough, in startups, we are all first time managers, you know, most of mm-hmm. us. And when we grow our team, we start naming people in our teams, managers. Oh, you know, you've been with us for three years and now we have too many developers. You're going to be a manager and you go manage three or four developers. And those people have no clue what it means. And it's actually pretty, pretty, it's more difficult than it seems to tell them what you expect from a manager, what a manager should be doing. And that radical candor book is like, it's a playbook of what it means. And to summarize it to you and the audience, it means two things. It means you need to care personally about the people you're managing with everything it means. Like, you know, they need to feel that you care about them. You care about their progression. You care about who they are as human beings. You care about who they are as professionals and you care about helping them get what they need and do what they want to do and be happy about it. That's, that's what it means. And on the other hand, you need to challenge them directly. Meaning, you know, don't try to be nice to them when there's no reason to be nice. When things are not going well, you need to give them feedback, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a constructive way, of course. But don't keep that for yourself. It's going to lead to horrible situation down the, down the path. So care about them and let them know and make them feel that way and challenge them when things are not working fine. And it, it, to be, it, it sounds easy, but it's, it sounds simple, but it's not easy because I'm, we, as human beings, we have a hard time challenging people because we feel like, oh, I'm going to be mean to them. They're going to feel bad about me. They're not going to like me anymore. <laughs> They're going to feel horrible. I don't, wake my, I don't want to make my people feel horrible about me, so I'm just going to be nice even if I'm not happy. That's not right, and it doesn't work in the long run. 
I've just bought the book while you're explaining it. You're actually, it's, I think, the second or the third person I mentioned, so I really need to uh, read it. Oh, they, these you can read, you can read and reread this book several times. You will always learn something. You can apply to the way you work and the way you manage. Yeah, and it, and it, it is such an undervalued uh, part of the job, and it mm -hmm. is such a difficult part of the job to learn because it's, you learn by screwing up basically <laughs> and i still screw up on a daily basis and my team my managers do as well so like learning how you can improve your skills at managing is is it's a constant it's a, mm -hmm. it's something you need to do constantly cool final question um if you were to start over what would you have done differently whoa you want Every, another question? No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you more a philosophical answer than anything yeah. else. Sure. I would ch I would change everything because with what I know today, I would have avoided hundreds of mistakes that was super costly in the past that I would have loved to avoid. So I, I there was there are hundreds of choices that were wrong and that made us waste time and money and energy and have sleepless night for too long. There are hundreds of choices we've made, Ben and I, that if we had known what we know today, we would have made them differently and save a ton of time, energy, and stress. So yeah. I would change everything. But that's but a I journey, would, right? I would also change nothing. Yeah. Because all that made me arrive to where I am today, and I'm happy, and I'm where I want to be, and I'm doing what I want to do, so if I changed it, maybe I would be in a different place where I wouldn't be happy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. But, you know, the, our human journey is made of all this. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change it because I'm not sure it would have worked that way if I had, if I had changed it. So it's, I would change everything, but I, I wouldn't change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's food for thought. Think about this and try to make sense out of it. I will. Thank you. Thank you for being on Founder Coffee, Emmerich. My uh, it pleasure. Was it was really awesome. It was awesome for me. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.